I don't know if you have a tendency to do this. But do you think sometimes that everybody else has got it easier than you? Especially those Bible folks, right? People in the Bible, it was just easy for them to wait on the Lord. Anybody struggle with waiting on the Lord? Wish he would have delivered that package two weeks ago. It's a challenge. And I think sometimes we, <clears throat> we idolize how God worked in the life of the saints of old and long for him to work in the same way in our life. We go, well, you know what? If God talked to me that way, oh, I wouldn't have any trouble t- trusting him. If God guided me that way, if God helped me that way, but the truth is we all have our own problems, even Bible characters. You know, there's only one perfect Bible character. All the rest of them are, are at least messed up, at least as messed up as you and I are. Some of them quite a bit more. There's a great book out there. And I know it's early. You might not, if you've not had your caffeine, you might not enjoy the title of the book. But the title of the book, a Christian book, is Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. That's wonderful. Like that, if you work with people at all, if you're in leadership or management, buy the book. That is, that is like the, the, the kindergarten rule that lives forever. Everybody's normal until you get to know them. And so this morning, we have the chance to get to know a, a Bible character a little, bit, a little bit better. We're looking at the life of Isaac, and we're looking in this series at their last words. Now again, we're, we're faced with, with a, a very similar situation to what we had last week, and it's, it's similar on two fronts. Number one, Isaac's last words, like Abraham's last words, are not his dying words. Isaac will utter his last words recorded in the scripture and then live for 20 or 30 more years. We just don't know anything. The Bible did not think, the Holy Spirit did not think that anything he said after this was worth recording. Like when you start to think through the inspiration of the scripture, there are a lot of words he probably said over the rest of his life. The Bible's not interested in them. So the, the, the first similarity is not his dying words but they are his last words. Number two, okay, this is the kicker. Isaac's last words are the exact same last words as Abraham's last week. So y'all are going, man, it's going to be a really short sermon. I could just listen to last week's and go home. Start the, you know, start the, start the roast here early. It is a completely different situation. Completely different situation. Now, um, there's Larry Muncy. Larry liked to give me a hard time because... Uh, Man, it was three or four years ago when I preached on the prodigal son. Oh, he's laughing already. He knows it. Um, we, we spent four weeks on the same Bible passage going through the prodigal son, looking at it from the son's perspective, the father's perspective, from the elder brother's perspective, and then from God's perspective. And so same passage every week. And, and Larry said, you know, I've known a lot of preachers that can cover that passage in one week just fine. So um, <laughs> thank you, Larry. Today, we look at the very same last words, but I think to really um, benefit from it, we really have to look at the circumstance. And this is a terrible thing to say, okay? We're in church, I know it, um, so you can, you can fill out your anonymous uh, letter here later. When we look at Isaac, 
Okay, Isaac, the child of promise. You are looking at a family that probably gets the most pathetic family in the Bible award. Did you know that? So like if you've had a rough week, grandparenting, parenting, kidding, well, kidding is easy. Um, if you've had a difficult week as a family, congratulations. Just know you, you don't come in first place. Isaac and his family comes in first place for most pathetic family in the Bible award. Not a single one of them trusted each other. It's a terrible story. And as we look at these last words, there's, there's lessons for us to be learned. You know the story of Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were told that they would have a kid. They had to wait and wait and wait years. As a matter of fact, along the way, they thought, hey, well, maybe God was waiting for us to take the initiative. So Abraham, why don't you marry my, maid, my, my maiden, my servant girl, and let's kind of do a surrogacy thing and have a child that way. No, uh, other routes were not what God wanted. He said, no, uh, there is no surrogacy involved. Sarah will have a child. They tried to take things into their own hands. It didn't work. But now that Isaac has been born, God's way is clear. God has said through Abraham, he gave tremendous blessing. Every nation in the world will be blessed through your family. Abraham's one person. He has one son of promise. He has other sons, but he has Isaac as the son of promise. So right now, the way things look, it is Isaac and his dad. How in the world are the two of them supposed to bless the entire world? But there is a faithful lineage that God is starting that will expand into a wide family. So now that Abraham has trusted God and Isaac is here, the way is clear now, right? The pathway is it's through Abraham's family, through Isaac's family. Certainly people are going to stay on the straight and narrow from here on out, right? Wrong. Wrong. No way. And I have to ask the question just as we get started. Isn't the same thing true for us? Yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard someone kind of uh, despising the message of the Bible. And so, well, I don't think it's fair that Adam and Eve screwed up and I get blamed for it. Oh, wouldn't you, don't you know that had you been in the same situation as our representative, that you would have damned the entire race yourself? Maybe even set record time. You would have done it too. You know how I know you would have done it too? Because you do it now. You might not be guilty of committing the original sin. No, yours is far worse. You commit actual sin. Why do you commit actual sin? Because Adam and Eve committed original sin and our whole race was plunged into this dysfunction. And so we constantly are tempted to weigh out God's ways and go, eh, I'll go with mine. I think my way is wiser. So Genesis 27 and I, I certainly don't mean this in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. It introduces us to not the first dysfunctional family in the Bible. Adam and Eve were a dysfunctional family. Adam had a, a role to protect his wife. Yet when the talking snake shows up, listen, a snake doesn't have to talk for my wife to need protection. A snake shows up. I have a job to do. I, I kill it. <laughs> a talking snake shows up. He's nowhere there to protect his wife. What happens with their kids. First murder in the Bible. What happens with Noah? Uh, drunkenness, all kinds of messed up stuff. Abraham and Sarah lying about 
He, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. All kinds of dysfunction. So Genesis 27 is the story of Jacob's trickery and his thievery and his deception, but there are deeper uh, lessons still. It, it goes back to, um, well, we're not looking at Genesis 25, it goes back to the whole story of how Jacob and his older brother Esau are born. They're twins. So Esau is older, not by days or by years, but by minutes. And uh, uh, as uh, Rebecca is pregnant, she can feel the kids wrestling in her stomach. Uh, that's reason 573 that I'm glad that I'm a man. Um, I will never experience that, nor do I want to know exactly what it's like that. A stomach ache is quite enough for me. I would not need twins wrestling in my stomach. Grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for that. But she is having these twins wrestle in her stomach, and, and she knows that um, even though it's her first kids, that something is not right. So it says that she inquires of the Lord as to what the manner of this wrestling is. And what the Lord says is basically that the older will serve the younger. Now, in ancient Near Eastern history, if you were the firstborn, you, you, you got um, not just first share, you got extra shares. There was a, a certain um, emphasis and priority that was placed upon the firstborn. But yet, in contrast to the tradition of their day and age, the secondborn son would receive that position of preeminence. <clears throat> At the end of Genesis chapter 25, um, we see this beginning to happen. Jacob comes out holding on to the heel of his older brother, grasping for him. And at the end of uh, that chapter, uh, they're grown up, and Esau is famished, and Jacob happens to be a homebody cooking in the kitchen. And he comes in, uh, Esau comes in from the field and says, man, that smells good. Give me a bowl. And Jacob says, for your birthright. Esau says, what good is a birthright to me if I'm dead? Give me the food, I'll give you my birthright. Okay, you got a deal. God's plan in dishonest ways starting to come to fruition. And here's the first warning. <clears throat> and this first warning really cascades um, and showers everything that happens in this story. It functions in a, as a warning that we must do God's will God's way. We must do God's will God's way. Two challenging things in that statement. Number one, God's will. Not always easy. It tells you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Christ. Not an easy calling. But then it's not just that you do God's will, because you can do God's will, not God's way. But we're called to do God's will, God's way. Look at verses 1 through 5 of Genesis chapter 27. When, it, <coughs> excuse me, when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt some game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Abraham, obviously, a little under the weather. Actually, more than a little under the weather, he thinks his death is imminent. And he says, it's time for me as the father to pass on my blessing. So Esau, make my last meal. 
make me that dish that you know I love with those special herbs and spices from the kernel that uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat it up. I'm going to enjoy it. And then bring it back to me and I'm going to bless you. Then you can almost, uh, if Miss Sharon was on the piano, I could get a little dun-dun-dun. Verse 5. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. She eavesdropping? She outside that tent? I think she was. I'll let you draw your own conclusions as we walk through here. You find out some interesting things about a couple characters here. <clears throat> and we'll find out more as we walk through the rest of the passage. Isaac, he's old. And it says that he's so old that his eyes have grown dim, so much so that he can't even recognize the people that he loves the most. Now, we will see uh, something in this passage that would imply that Isaac's lack of sight is not just physical. He's lost sight of God. Isaac, as well as anyone, knows the prophecy about the older doing what? Serving the younger. And as he gets ready to pass on the blessing, passing on the blessing in ancient Near Eastern culture was a very public time of celebration because everyone knew that it was just the, the law in the order of things <clears throat> for the firstborn to be blessed. So it's a party. It is, it's, it's public. It's celebratory. And what does Isaac do? He whispers to Esau in the quiet and dark confines of his tent, and instead of making it something public and celebratory, he makes it something hidden and private. Although it's not private, is it? Because Rebecca is outside listening to the conversation. So here's what's happening. Isaac is in a quiet but determined rebellion against what God had said was true. How's that for one of the patriarchs? Blatant disobedience of what God has said. Now, why, why would he choose Esau over Isaac? Well, you know, I find something really interesting here. Why did Esau sell his birthright? He's a Baptist. He's ready. Okay? Where did Esau get that appetite from? It's pretty interesting that as Isaac is concocting this quiet rebellion, it is over his favorite meal. His, his moral behavior is governed by his palate and by his stomach. Hmm. Like father, like son. Isaac is going to go off course with his favorite son who maybe they share the same kind of appetite. Maybe every Monday night they go down and get chicken wings and maybe Jacob's, you know, Maybe he's a vegan, you know, and they're just, they, don't, they don't get together. They don't enjoy the same sports. They don't pull for the same team. But, but Isaac and Esau, they're buds. They have the same palate. They have the same preferences. They have the same passions. And Jacob, he's a little softer. He's not a hunter. He's a little bit more of a homebody. Regardless of how you want to explain it, Isaac's in rebellion. <clears throat> And the point here in all of this, as we look at doing God's will God's way, is that replacing God's will with your own will always be a terrible decision. You will never prosper by substituting your will for God's will. And that's exactly what Isaac is trying to do. 
Esau. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Esau from verses 1 through 5 that we've just looked at, but we do know, going back a chapter or two, that he sold his birthright. He, he, he bartered with his brother a meal for the birthright, and there's an exchange. So Esau, by agreeing with his dad's plan, is proving to be dishonorable. He's breaking his oath. All on the sly. Hey, Jacob doesn't need to know about this. Rebecca doesn't need to know about this. And so we see him prioritizing uh, both Esau and Isaac, the, or um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac and Jacob, prioritizing the immediate over the important. One of the things that's interesting about Esau, and you don't see this immediately in the passage, but it's in the surrounding context. Abraham's uh, last words were, please don't let Isaac marry one of these local girls, one of these pagan girls. And yet Esau completely disregarded his father's example. You know that story of how they met and how awesome it was and how God showed up? We talked about it last week. You know, you, every family talks about, um, Colin's here and he loves to hear the story of how Marcy and I met, by chance, walking across campus. And, you know, we knew who each other was, were, but we, we, something happened. There was a spark that happened. Then we started to get to know each other more. And then fast forward a few years, he's here. He's like, can you tell me the story again? I'm like, what part? It's like 25 years now. Um, all of it, Dad, all of it. Every family likes to tell the story of how their family began. And Esau completely disregards the example of his father and marries local Hittite girls. Now what's odd is Isaac, the father, will make sure that Jacob's marriage is done the right way. It's the end of the chapter. We'll get there. But he was extraordinarily indulgent with Esau when he married outside the faith and never offered one ounce of correction. Look with me at verses 5 through 8 and verses 11 through 17. We'll see some more details about the rest of the family. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, so bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. So now, therefore, my son, this is Rebecca speaking, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare them for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. Verses 11 through 17. To his mother's plan, Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Obey my voice. Go bring them to me. So he went and took them, brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And he, she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Rebecca's a completely different story. She doesn't trust her husband Isaac, nor does she trust God. Oh, God said, Jacob's going to be the one who's blessed. But everything looks like it's going sideways. I must have to do something. God must have forgotten about his promise if he's going to allow this to happen. And so she is willing to use underhanded means to try to accomplish God's will. 
mean, honestly, doesn't she have a noble cause? And God said, the older shall serve the younger. But does God bless dishonesty and lying? No. No. She's brazenly unrepentant. She even says, Jacob, don't worry about the consequences. If there's a curse to be had, let it be on me. I'll take it for you, son. It's what I can do for the next generation. Don't you worry. And this intended deception that we see play out in the rest of the chapter creates a serious rift in the family. And guess who's the cause of it all? Mom and dad, through his action, they destroy their own family. Now, what could she have done? If she overheard the conversation, she could have had a conversation with her husband. Isaac, oh no, I hate it when you have that tone. What's up? I heard you saying something to Esau. You remember what God said? Uh, God? He said something? Yeah, about the older serving the younger? Why are you, as a reputable godly person, rebelling against God? There's no indication that that would be an easy conversation. And nobody likes confrontation, right? I mean, if you do, we will pray for your soul. Nobody likes confrontation. And she would rather lie and deceive and cheat and steal steal, than talk. She's very concerned about what is right related to Jacob. But she doesn't give a rip about doing what is right to ensure that what is God's will happens. Jacob happens to be a destroyer of relationships. He destroys his relationship with his brother. He destroys his relationship with his father. He gets shipped off to his uncle, and there's, uh, they almost come to blows. Jacob is a destroyer, and he is grasping. We, we have some sympathy with Jacob because, I mean, listen, before he was even born, God had made this prophecy about him ruling over his brother, kind of like Joseph. Joseph had the dreams, and his, by telling his dreams to his brothers, it didn't help him at all. It shipped him off in slavery. So uh, Jacob is told before he's even born that there's a prophecy about him that the older will serve the younger. Something's going to happen. But here's the point. He is grasping after something that God has said is his. But the lesson for us here is don't ever reach for blessings in a way that deserves cursing. It's that adage. Do God's will God's way. Because even if you're grasping for blessings that God has said are yours, but you're doing it in a way that is sinful, in a way that deserves cursing, you forfeit the benefit of the blessing. Rebecca and Jacob here are trying to manipulate God's will. You ever try to do that? There's a word for it. Foolish. Don't try to manipulate God's will. It's interesting to see the pairings throughout the story because the relationship is so messed up. Jacob and Esau are never together in the story. Ever. Live under the same roof, never together. The Bible's very clear that Isaac's favorite was Esau and Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. The Bible says they had their favorites. And so you see Rebekah over here with Jacob. You see Abraham in the tent over here with Esau. And then you see Rebecca outside the tent because she doesn't trust him. And then she comes back over here and whispers and says, we got to beat him out of it. 
crazy family. While Jacob is encouraged by his mom, he's fully guilty for what he does. And even in voicing his objections to his mother, Mom, wait, he's hairy, I'm not. He's concerned about getting caught. He's not concerned about the morality of what they're about to do. He didn't say, Mom, this is wrong. Mom, like, this is going to mess up your relationship with Dad. There's none of that. It's, uh, I don't think this is going to work. I'm game. I don't think it's going to work. Terrible warning. We have to do God's will, God's way. But there's something wonderful in this passage as well, something that we can rejoice over. And we see this in the main body of this passage, that we can rejoice that God's plan will always overcome man's sinful scheming. God's plan will always overcome man's sinful scheming. Uh, look, at the, uh, look at the verses that we have on the screen, verses 18 through 24. It uh, says this. So he went into his father, and he said, My father? And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Two lies about his identity and about his birth order. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat. Uh, eat of my game that you may that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Jacob throws God into the equation. Because the Lord your God granted me success. Blasphemy. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him, and, he, and his father said, the voice is Jacob's voice, and the hand, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's, so he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. Verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Jacob walks into the tent, and he's almost timid. He's almost not ready to speak because he's so worried that the gig is going to be up before it even gets going. So he walks in, and he says, Father? Squeaks it out. Dad, Dad. Almost unwilling to speak except in response. And the problem is, once he starts speaking, he doesn't stop lying. Five times in the passage. Isaac knows something's out of order, can't quite figure out what it is. His eyes aren't working, so he, he goes, let me trust my other senses. Hmm, the voice doesn't sound right. Hmm, let me feel you. No, that, yeah, well, yeah. Voice is wrong, but the senses, the, the hands feels right. Hey, hey, son, come here. Give me a kiss. He doesn't really want to kiss. What's he want? He wants him close enough to... <laughs> Esau's got a distinctive smell. Smells like the field. He lies to his dad. And yet, in the end, Jacob gets what he wants. He gets the blessing. Not God's way, deceptively. Verse 28 and 29. Isaac says, May God give you the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let 
people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. He, Isaac was going to give this blessing to, Jake, to Esau in spite of the fact that God said it was going to be the other way. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Three components to the blessing. That there is um, uh, fertility when it comes to uh, farming. That there be rulership over nations and families and that there be protection. The blessing was viewed as a future shaping prayer that controlled the destiny over the one being blessed. The story goes on. There's tension the meal's cleaned up, um, the blessing has been given, and Jacob goes marching out of the tent with his stolen goods as Esau comes walking in with a deer slung over his shoulders, and he goes to making preparations. So he doesn't go into the tent immediately, but there's this tension. The brothers never meet, but they kind of pass by one another, walking by the kitchen. It's amazing here that God uses even man's sin to accomplish his purposes. How does that work out? I don't know. But as Esau prepares his meal and eventually brings it into his father, something terrible has happened. And Esau and Isaac figure it out. Look at verse 33. Esau comes in and presents his meal to his father. And then it says, Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac realizes he's been duped. And Isaac realizes that he had sought to box with God and had tried to manipulate God's will the way that he wanted things to work out. And he realizes that foolishness. God had said, Jacob will be blessed. And when you look at the blessing that he gave about rulership over his brothers, it's exactly what happened. Not willingly, not intentionally, but in that moment as he is confronted with the reality of what he attempted to do and what he actually did, he trembles violently, but then he says, I've blessed him, and it's God's will. He'll be blessed. It's irrevocable. I'm not taking it back. What I have done, I have done. Esau's mad. It says he cries out, my brother's such a trickster. And it's interesting that Esau is remarked as crying out when Isaac's name means what? Laughter. Because Sarah laughed when God said she would have the kid. There's this contrast of the family dynamic. He finally understands the true nature of his brother and he confesses to his dad his own foolishness. Dad, I sold my birthright and now he's stolen my blessing. I've lost everything. Jacob has gained everything. Third, we see that deviating from God's way can bring painful consequences. Verses 41 through 46. It says, now, understatement of, of the year, Esau hated Jacob. And Esau said to himself, I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau were told to Rebekah. There she is again, listening in, finding out what's said. 
So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, my son, obey my voice. Um, Mom, that's why I'm in trouble in the first place. Obey my voice, flee to Laban, my brother, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Thanks, Mom. Then I will send and bring you from there, because why should I be bereft of you both in one day? The rift is complete. Esau intends to murder Jacob, not the first instance. It's interesting when you talk about the, uh, uh, the, 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 the brothers of Adam and Eve. Abel was righteous, and his brother killed him. Jacob is not righteous, and all Esau does is threaten. He never actually delivers on it. And mom here continues to scheme. She hears Esau's plan. She decides to send him away for a few days. And she even implies that it's Jacob's fault. He's mad at you because of what you did to him. Why would you do such a thing? Uh, Because you told me to. Stay there until he forgets. She's not honest with Isaac. She knows that she can't send Jacob away without dad being involved. And so she uses Esau's problematic marriages as a smokescreen to protect her favorite son. Look at verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. That's Esau's wives. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She knows she needs to get Jacob out of Dodge. And she can't be honest with Isaac about her own deception and Jacob stealing the blessing. So she has to use the messed up family dynamics as a smokescreen to accomplish what she wants to accomplish. Scheming to the very end. What she didn't know is it would be 20 years before Jacob would return. And that when she says, son, obey my voice and flee to my brother Laban, they would be the last words that she speaks to this, her beloved son. She'd die before he comes back. She says, why should I be bereft? Flee so that Esau doesn't kill you. Because why should I be bereft of both of my sons at one time? And yet, not only is Jacob exiled, like Moses, like Hagar, but Esau leaves as well. This is, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go marry another girl, go to another country, and I'm going to be gone. Chapter 28, verse 32, confirm that. Rebecca doesn't quite learn that she never really won or gained anything. All that happened was only what God had predicted would happen. There was no profit. There was just destruction. Destruction. Fourth and finally, very quickly, we learn that we should freely obey God's will and not forcibly submit to it. We should freely obey God's will and not forcibly submit to it. Life is hard, but it's harder when you rebel against God. It's harder when you kick against the goads. And so the story comes to a close, and it's not a happy ending. Jacob is exiled. Esau is estranged. And Rebekah and, uh, and Isaac have each other. Probably a just and fitting punishment. As deceptive as they are. But the story does end with a note of hope. It just doesn't end that way in 
chapter 27, chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then Isaac called Jacob and he blessed him again. And he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. These are Isaac's last words. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. The first time Isaac blessed Jacob, he didn't mean to. He was rebelling not submitting to God's will. And here, he's learned his lesson. He does what God wanted him to do the first time. Think about all of the family issues that would have been avoided if Isaac would have simply been the man of God that he was supposed to be. Initially, he was deceived But now he knows that it is Jacob that he is blessing and that he is commissioning and that he is sending on. He's chosen to obey, Isaac has. And it's beautiful, beautiful, glorious to see the grace of repentance. See a man doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's finally content with God's word. Isaac, the son of promise that Abraham had to lay on an altar as a sacrifice. And when he was a boy, was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Christ would make for us. Yet now as an old man, painfully reminds us how much not like Christ he is. He's lied, he's disobeyed, he's, he's brought down all of this destruction upon his family. The point is this. Isaac, as a patriarch, needed a savior. And despite everything that we know in Genesis 27, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, summarily reports this. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. He's recording the hall of faith. Most pathetic family in the Bible, hall of faith. Because the Bible says that God, for those who trust in him, doesn't count their wickedness against them. Instead, you get a glowing commendation. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. So the story that is so wickedly rotten ends with happy obedience. And if your life will end with happy obedience too, you'll have a happy ending. Because God's will always needs to be done God's way. I'll tell you what God wants. It's real simple. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Not only that, He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to live purely like He wants you to live. He wants you to serve. And somewhere in those three points of reference is God's application for you today. Do you know him? Do you look like him? Are you serving him? Father, 
Help us not to trust our own way and our own will, but to be obedient to you. Father, if we have been running our life our own way and realize how messed up it is, give us today the grace of repentance the way that you did for Isaac. Help us to say, Father, I give you my life. I trust you with my future. I need you to forgive me of my sins. I need you to help me learn what it means to trust in you. Help us as a church to encourage that. Help us to continually have that repentance that wants to please and obey you, serve you in all things. Because, Father, we want to do your will, your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.